Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. I wrote a little song to say, I don't think I know how to write a song. Similes like a burden hand is like the day is long. Started a career, but all I do is worry. I have no career. I get invited to a party, but all I'm thinking is, what am I doing here?
That was Gary Stockdale singing Easier. Uh, check Gary Stockdale's stuff out. He's got a, a full array of great music, some of it kind of cheeky and funny, some of it serious. Uh, he worked on uh, Penn, Penn and Teller's Bullshit series for many, many years, was the musical person, supervisor, and, and I think he wrote all the music for them, too. Uh, just an amazing talent. Full O talent, that Gary Stockdale, and a friend of mine. So always happy to play his stuff. Welcome, everyone, to the show. Uh, welcome to uh, to Waking from the American Dream on this April 25th, people. Here we are. And uh, I've got a good show today. Excited. Uh, you know, probably going to just jump right in here in a few minutes. But uh, just wanted to... Uh, what the, oh, I was on uh, something to look out for. I was on The Point yesterday, which is a Young Turks show. I always want to call it the Fine Young Turks, but that's the Fine Young Cannibals. That would be different. Um, and uh, so I was on the point yesterday uh, with Anna Caspian, Carpassian. What is the hell is her lovely name? She's a lovely, lovely person. Uh, and the theme was the American dream. And I, it was funny. I was like, gee, I wonder why they asked me to be on that. So I, I guess I'm sort of a semi person who thinks about these things because I've got American dream in the title of my show. Uh but yeah, go to YouTube, go to the Young Turks uh, channel and check out this week's The Point to see me, you know, looking like a pundit or something like that. You know, that's what they make you. I guess it's kind of, I mean, it's not, pra- I mean, it's a great thing in its own right, but I always feel like it's kind of practice for Bill Maher. Like someday if I'm ever on the Bill Maher panel, then I'll I'll know how to be on a panel because I practiced at The Point. Um, and wow, I, while I was there, they were telling me that the Young Turks had hit their one billionth view on YouTube. <laughs> wow. One billionth tube. They're the longest running live news show online. Uh, just that's very, very cool stuff. So I'm always happy to go over there and, and do that stuff. So check that out. I was in Dallas last week, had a good time in Dallas um, and uh, had an interesting moment where I was going to be on a morning show. I was on a morning show, but I was I hadn't gone on yet. I was there for the segment before, and it was kind of like Dallas's version of The View. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm watching, uh, I think it was like two segments before I was going to be there. And there was like the panel, it's four women, a 20 something, and then a woman I'd say is probably in her 60s, and then two kind of 30 something ladies. And one of them was Pat Smith, Emmett Smith's wife, and a really beautiful, gorgeous woman. Uh, So I was listening to them kind of discussing something. They were talking about being in conflict with their husband or making some kind of decision and not agreeing with their husbands. And and Pat Smith said, well, you know, I'm – I just, you know, at the in the end, I knew I was going to submit to him because that's what the Bible tells me to do as a wife. 
And I thought, oh, wow. They just said that on television? <laughs> like, I guess in Dallas, it's okay to say that on television. And uh, so I see they're going, wow, really? This woman just turned back the dial on feminism about three or four decades or maybe three or four hundred years. I wasn't quite sure. Uh, and so I immediately got my, you know, got my got like in this outrageous uproar inside of me and like tweeted immediately something like um, uh, women on who's going to interview me just talked about uh, submitting to her husband because that's what the Bible tells her to. And then I wrote hashtag Jesus fucking Christ. I was all in an uproar about it, of course, you know, and and then another segment went by and still watching them a little bit. And then it was my segment. And I'm like, okay, I got to get my head in the game here. I'm going to talk about my show and, you know, Carlin Home Companion. And I want people to come out because it was going to help this amazing charter school in Dallas. And um, so I'm like, got to get my head in the game and got to focus on these women and get my intuitive, empathic skills up for having a good, deep conversation with them. Because, you know, I'm I'm on TV now. (laughs) You know, the camera's on you. You don't want to look like a total asshat. And so I'm walking towards the woman and and Pat's walking towards me and she's this gorgeous woman. And suddenly out of my mouth is like, hey, beautiful. So nice to meet you. And she's like, oh, honey, thank you so much. And hugs me. And we have this warm embrace. And I meet the other woman, Lisa, who's going to interview me. And and I know that they don't really know who my dad is or they kind of know. But if they know, I'm thinking, oh, dear, (laughs) what are they thinking right now? So we sit on the couch and there's women in the audience. It's kind of like an Oprah, you know, like The View. And uh and of course, I'm thinking now about the tweet that I just sent out with the hashtag Jesus fucking Christ. I'm thinking, oh, really? Was that smart to do, Kelly? And uh, then we're getting into the conversation. We're talking about my show. And suddenly the conversation kind of takes a turn. And I realize I'm talking about my show in a way that I talk about here, but I've never really talked about in the mainstream media before, which is that it's really so much of it is about me finding my voice, me finding my place, me coming out of the shadow of my father. And and as a woman, how difficult that is for us in this culture, even in 2013. And boy, this woman Lisa's eyes lit up and then Pat, her eyes lit up and Lisa said, wow, you're talking Pat's language now. This is what Pat's really into. And Pat's like, oh my God, this is so much what my journey's about right now is finding my voice and my power and owning who I am. And I'm thinking, yeah, I bet so. <laughs> like, <laughs> If you're submitting to your husband, I get you. Personal power must be an issue in your life, I'm thinking. And, uh, and then... And she's like, oh, and, and I have this women's conference and you'd be so perfect to talk about this. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've always wanted to talk at a women's conference about this. That would be incredible. And so I'm like, yes, that would be wonderful. And we really connected on this heart level. And the interview was over and I gave her my information and exchanged it and said goodbye and then quickly walked out of the studio and deleted my tweet. <laughs> I did it. I deleted the tweet. I I realized I had completely prejudged this person based on what she said, just like I feel prejudged so much these days by people who don't exactly hold uh, maybe the same space I do in my own spirituality. I mean, I'm, I'm basically afraid of ath- most atheists these days. Uh, not that I'm uh, a believer or something. I mean, that's the word that comes up. Are you a believer? But um, But I just saw, wow, it just doesn't get us anywhere to assume anything about anyone. So I changed my tweet. I changed it to something. I don't even remember what it was now, but I hope she didn't read it. I really do. I really hope she didn't read it. I'd feel so bad. Anyway, I just needed to get that off my chest. All right, folks, I've written a bit of an essay here today. So we're just going to 
jump in now. Uh, The essay title is called Spring. Spring is so confusing. Life bursts forth everywhere. It clutches my heart and lifts me up. I remember, yes, yes, life moves on. But then I remember, no, no, life moves on. Spring is the season of my grief. It is a marathon run of birthdays and death days that I wish I could sprint through. Have you ever noticed that sprint and spring are almost the same words? Uh, not that it matters. If I've learned anything about life and death, sprinting does, does little good. In the end, it all catches us all. A few days ago, I was out in my front yard and suddenly noticed that this big, scrappy, grassy bush on the side of my garden, the one that Ned, my elderly dog, frequently does his morning pee on, was blanketed in buds. Almost every tip had a pristine, perfectly encased white package of potential. It took my breath away. One day, it was just another bush that I was free to ignore, and the next, it was all of creation itself daring me to pay attention. I stood before it as if it were a Roshi, a Zen master, silently holding the mysteries of all I seek. I do most of my seeking in the winter, when it is quiet and the great stillness has taken over swaths of the normally humming landscape of life. I allow the stillness to enter my mind and heart. I find myself easily sitting in meditation in the early hours of gray and cold. I revel in the collective pause that we as a culture take between Thanksgiving and New Year's. No, it's not that we physically pause during that time. God knows we rush and clamor quite a bit. But there is some other kind of pause that the holiday season invites. It's like we're all off off the hook from something. Nothing really productive gets done then. It can wait for the new year. I, too, let myself off the hook of productivity and let myself revel in the pause when I find myself again. I'm like a long-lost friend sauntering toward myself, falling into a deep, long hug, knowing that it doesn't matter how long we've been separated. We pick up from where we left off and sink into the now. And it is there in that now that I fall in love with my stillness, my itness, my being. When most of the natural world pauses, hibernates, and retreats, I discover an internal well filled with love and hope and an eternal vision for life. Within death, I find life. I am. But then before I know it, the Phoebe, the Phoebe birds have frantically put the finishing touches on this year's nest. The wisteria has exploded its purple life onto the pergola, and hummingbirds and butterflies stop by for a quick hello during their daily rounds. Life, life, life is everywhere. A quickening, a sparkling light, literally light, is everywhere. Then this slow breaking open of my heart happens. I wonder why tears are spontaneously showing up in my eyes when I glance at a mother and child on the street or a song from my childhood plays or, and then I remember it is April, the month when it became all too clear that my mother was dying. And and if it is April, that means that May comes next, May. May 11th, the anniversary of her death, then Mother's Day. The year my mother died, 1997, May 11th, fell on Mother's Day. This year, Mother Day, Mother's Day is May 12th, my father's birthday. 
He would have been 76 this year. Then June. Their wedding anniversary on the 3rd, mine on the 10th. My mother's birthday on the 12th, mine on the 15th. And then we come to June 22nd. It will be the 5th anniversary of my father's death. Five years. Impossible. And yet here it is. How do we endure? How do we manage this marathon of life and death? Our hearts, they stretch. They hold the joy, the life, the longing, that deep longing to hear our mother's laugh, to see the twinkle in our father's eye. Our hearts, they stretch. They hold the abundance. They hold the absence. Our hearts, they stretch. They hold the whole world and all that is right with it, and they hold the whole world and all that will inevitably go wrong. My heart. My heart, it stretches to hold myself and accept all that I am, all that I have been, and all that I will be. It gives me such space, such space, that when I walk out into the morning air on this very morning and see that every single bud on that big, scrappy, grassy bush has bloomed into full, glorious flower, I know, I know that all I can do is bow deeply to what is, what was, and what will be. shot and I mean it I'm suicidal with the secret you say you're sad and I believe it I'm so easily confused I make a full stop for the cop then I'm off and I'm buzzing I'm only looking for some love and so are you you're so scared musical chairs musical chairs When you're living at the end of the world, it is good to be alive. There's a boy for every girl at the end of the world, at the end of the world, at the end of the world, at the end of the world.
on Friday, cloudy skies and a chance of rain. And that was John Elliott with Musical Chairs. You can find John Elliott stuff, I'm guessing, on johnelliott.com. Because you know what? As we know here at Waking from the American Dream, it's all about the dot-com. So I'm going to jump into uh, my guest today and uh, did a little pre-recorded interview with my guest. She had to be somewhere right around the time we do this live. So we uh, jumped into the studio earlier today and sat down and had an amazing chat about story and the neuroscience of story. And... uh, Whenever Logan tells me we are ready, we're good. Okay, I'm gonna. I do an introduction in the piece and everything, so I'm just gonna hand it over to myself. How fucking freaky is that? My guest is an instructor at the UCLA Writers Extension Program. She has worked in publishing as a literary agent. She's worked as a TV producer and story consultant for some big and fancy Hollywood production companies out there. She's uh, written stories and told stories around Los Angeles. And uh, she's also written a great book, which she's here to talk about. At least we'll start talking about that. God knows where we'll end up. Uh, She's written a great book called Wired for Story, The Writer's Guide to Using Brain Science to Hook Readers from the Very First Sentence. Welcome, Lisa Cron. It is a pleasure to be here, Kelly. It's so nice for you to be here. Uh, Just uh, so the listeners know, Lisa and I know each other. I've known each other for, wow... Maybe 10 years? I think I I was out of grad school when we met or when we started hanging out. So 2004, 2005. And and Lisa was helping me with a manuscript. I was working on a memoir. And then I was working on a kind of a nonfiction self-help kind of a book. And All brilliant. And thank you. And uh, and was heading towards that direction. And for uh, numerous reasons, uh, didn't uh, didn't come to fruition yet. Uh, And then my dad died. My whole life changed, as we all know. So... But Lisa, I'm really excited you're here and was and was really thrilled to hear when uh, that you had a book out. And when I when I saw what the book was about, I was like, of course, it's about that, because we would have endless conversations about what makes a story great, what propels a reader to pick up a book. And you have I you have chalked so much you've stuffed so much information in this book. Uh, Just to give you a little overview, people, Uh, Lisa has figured out a way to connect brain science, neuroscience, uh, which she calls in the book Cognitive Secrets, which I love, that reveal the secrets of the power of story. And then you also go about debunking a a bunch of myths about writing and writing, good writing, especially, and and, and really what's the real deal around that. And uh, like I said before we started here, I was a little skeptical because, you know, as a writer, you're kind of in this zone when you're writing and it's very much, you know, I'm in my body and uh, writing from some strange place of the subconscious. I don't know where it's coming from, but there this sentence comes out of me and suddenly it all makes sense. And I was like, oh, this is, I know this is going to be really left brain stuff and which I love also. Um, but I was worried. I was like, oh, this is gonna, it's not gonna be able to apply it. And I have to tell you within like the first five pages, I was like, all right, I gotta take notes. I gotta think about this. I gotta rework a couple of things I'm working on because it's so spot on. So, uh, I, I wanna, I wanna thank you and I wanna, I wanna know how, how did this book come about for you? Why did you decide to finally put it down on the page? Oh, that's a great, Great question. Thank you so much, Kelly. Um, 
You know, I have worked with writers for my whole career, for my entire life. In fact, I've loved story for my since I was like a little kid, and I decided movies would be my thing. And then I saw every movie that was made for like twenty years. Um, and then when I was working in publishing, and then as an agent, and then with writers, I work one on one with writers. Also, I read so many manuscripts that just didn't make. It. I would be rooting for the writer. Often they'd be good writers. Yes. The sentences would be great. The words would be great. But it just there was no there there. It didn't hold you. There was nothing pulling you forward. And because. I couldn't just not like it and put it down. I had to write a report and say why it wasn't right and why it wasn't working. I really had to think about that. And I started to notice that writers were all making the same type of mistake, even though they made the mistake in their own you know, spectacular way. There were certain very specific things I was looking for in every manuscript I read. And then I started to notice that that was not what was being taught to writers. That what, mm. was, what writers were being taught was important wasn't really what was important. And so I started working with writers and I started kind of putting that down. And as I noticed, I was saying the same thing all the time. I started <laughs> writing it out going, I don't want to keep saying the same thing. And then, and the biggest breakthrough for me, the most exciting thing happened when I started to apply the neuroscience uh -huh. to it. How did that come about? So did you like all of a sudden where you're reading some articles and suddenly something clicked or did you go out seeking the neuroscience? Both. But what happened was it started to click. Yeah. I kind of thought, I always thought, and even as I was kind of writing the book before I was weaving all the neuroscience into it, I thought, this is how the brain works. We are wired for story. And I started to notice and had been noticing that everything I was reading in neuroscience, which is fascinating because neuroscience and story are both about the same thing. What makes people Tick. Yes. And so everything I was reading in neuroscience was really conforming, A, what I thought we were looking for in stories, and, and even more interesting, why. Yeah. Why we're looking for it and what story does to us and why it has the effect that it has on it has on us. Because again, it's real different than what we think. And then it was like, talk about an aha moment. <laughs> I realized that it went from this is my theory to, oh my God, I can prove this. Oh, that's great. And, yeah, it was, it was well, the best moment of my life, and, just about. And, and I think, it, you know, what I get from the book and, and is that, you know, being human is being a storyteller. Mm -hmm. That it's just, it is part of, of how how we are human right. and how we make sense of what's around us and, and survival strategies, coping strategies. I mean, it all ties into this thing called story, which we then make into fiction and into movies. Right. But in really inside of our minds, we're constantly creating, I mean, as a life coach and as a therapist before, I work with people all the time and I talk to them about the idea of narrative right. in their life. Everything everything in our life is a narrative. Yes. And we evaluate everything based on one thing. How is it going to affect me? Is this going to help me? Is this going to hurt me? Not just in terms of, you know, is it going to help me or hurt me if I look both ways when I cross the street? I know I need to do that. Right. But also socially. We're yes. hardwired to want to belong. And it's the really interesting thing is it's biological mm -hmm. and our need for story is biological. And if I could just kind of launch into one thing, Please, that kind yes, of, yeah, go. which is kind of where it came from because it kind of changes our idea of what a story is. Because since we like stories so much and they feel so good, in fact, as you said, there has never been a human society ever on earth that didn't have storytelling. Yes. It's a universal. But because we enjoy it so much, we tend to think of it as entertainment. Right. And you know how it's like you go home after a hard day in, in the world, you know, doing real things with real people. You want to flick on the TV or watch a movie or pick up a novel and lose yourself 
in a story because it's a way of kind of taking time out and rejuvenating. And, and getting and not having to think about your story. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And as a result, it's easy to think of story as something that is auxiliary. An escape like, or distraction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, our lives would be far, you know, drabber without stories, but we'd have survived just fine because story doesn't serve an actual purpose. Right. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Story was crucial to our evolution. We got here because of story, right? <gasps> I mean, opposable thumbs let us hang on. It was story <laughs> that told us what to hang on to because story allows us to envision and plan for the one thing that still to this day scares us more than anything else, which is the future, the unexpected. The unknown. The unknown. Because yes. think about it in your own life. How often is what you expect to have happen what actually happens? Right. Uh, Never. And when it does, <laughs> those few times when it does, right. how often does it feel like what you thought it would? You're never. Like, For sure, never. Right. Yeah. Stories are simulations that allow us to try on difficult situations to see what we would need to learn and do in order to survive them. Like, you know, I see those red berries and I'm starving. And it's and did I mention you know it's it's the it's the Stone Age so I can't go to the market buy something take it home and nuke it right but I heard this story about the Neanderthal next door who chowed down on a couple of handfuls and the way he said he was writhing on the ground before he died you know I mean he died that should be enough right so I think I'll forego the berries eat a couple of cold bugs and live to see the dawn and, and the takeaway is is that great feeling that we feel when we get lost in a story it's not ephemeral it's not arbitrary it's not pleasure for pleasure's sake. Hmm. It's biological, it's hardwired, it's chemical, it's a survival mechanism. Yes. It's dopamine. Right. Because what it does is it makes us curious to find out how that problem is going to solve so that we don't eat the red berries. In other words, stories taste good for the same reason food Stories, sorry, stories feel good. <laughs> they do taste good. For the same reason food tastes good, to get us to pay attention to them. And the takeaway is, is that we don't turn to stories to escape reality. We turn to story to navigate reality. Yeah. And that's what we're looking for in every story that, right here. And that's, that's such an, uh, that like, let's really like let that sink in. Like we, we use story to survive reality, to, to navigate reality, to navigate right? our lives. That is, that's, that's really an epiphany. And, and, and if you, and that I think really makes it land about how we are hardwired for it. That, I mean, like, it, like our very survival right? depends on us being able to follow and track the narrative of something. Like you said, the Neanderthal next right. door eating the red berries, yeah. you know, or, or where is the mountain lion, you know, exactly. on the next mountain? Where does he, where is he hanging out with his or her babies? Um, and, and yeah, and so, so because I, you know, I was, I used to contemplate and I have contemplated until this book, you know, like, why, why, why do we have story? Why are we so fascinated by it? What are these myths that, you know, being, having studied Jungian psychology, you know, what are these, these archetypes right. that we have? And, you know, why, why is it all there? And, and it is, it's so like, it's such a nice little coming together weaving of meaning for me mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. understand the story of story. Right. Oh, I think so. <laughs> And I think the scary thing about it, the flip side of it is, is we are as hardwired to get lost in a story. In other words, when we're lost in a story, it anesthetizes the part of our brain that even knows it is a story. They've done fMRI studies that show yes. that when you're lost in a good story, the areas of your brain light up that would light up if you were doing what that character is right, doing. Right, the mirror neurons. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and the thing is, is that your analytic brain just goes to sleep. You're mm. not questioning anything. You are feeling it. And the scary thing is, you know who knows this way better than writers? I mean, way better than writers? Advertisers, 
politicians. And religious leaders. And religious leaders, absolutely. <laughs> and you are being affected by stories even when you think you're not. You can't yes. turn You can't that, turn that off. No. This, yeah. The same we were hardwired for it. Because like you're saying, you know, back in the day when we were wired for it, life was much, most of what our brain is wired for it was a much simpler world, a world we no longer yeah, live. Yeah, very in. black and white, very life or death. Right. I mean, yeah. why do you think we think in sound bites? Yeah. Because life was a sound bite. Lion, run. That's all we needed. <laughs> you know, now it's so much more complicated and you're being affected by it whether you know it or not. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, yeah. And so, so, I mean, this is why the importance of, of media literacy is so important in our culture. And we, we are not teaching our children this. I think Mm -mm. in elementary school, we should be teaching children this, you know, whatever, their level of, you know, that they can understand this so that they understand the messages they're getting are being, you know, that they they need to wake up the other part of their brain to assess, is this truth or not? Because especially with politics, consumerism, and and one's spiritual life, you need to be careful because before you know it, you've given all your money to the wrong person and you're drinking uh, Kool-Aid in in the jungles of South America somewhere. True. I mean, you can balance the two. I mean, it's really interesting because they say on the one hand, do you know what they say that one of the key reasons for the success of the civil rights movement was in the 60s? It was a novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they say that it changed the way white America viewed racism by allowing them to experience its inhuman injustice yes. through the eyes of a six-year-old white girl. Yes, who, who was a completely kind of non-judgmental, She's, didn't have an agenda right. person. She's pulling it in, a 1991 wow. study. That's so beautiful. It, it, but it's true, a 1991 study by the... Um, but the Library of Congress Center for the Book found it second behind the Bible as books most often cited as making a difference. Wow. And the flip side is, is that you can end up at McDonald's at midnight chowing <laughs> down on a Big Mac, fries, and a 32-ounce Coke because you deserve a break today. We're affected by story whether we know it or not. Wow. And that's really pays to be a – you're going to feel first for sure, but you really got to unhook that and, yes. and think second. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is very, very true. Uh, let's jump in a little bit to some of the sure. some of the meat here inside the book for our <clears throat> writers and storytellers and uh, filmmakers out there. Uh, one of the things that um, I love about what you're talking about and what you what you uh, pull out so well is these three major elements of mm-hmm. the important three elements of a story: um, the the plot, of course. Right. The theme mm-hmm. and this thing called the protagonist's issue, right? Exactly, which is what the story is actually about, right? It's what it's about, <laughs> right? You know, and and I love the way you discern those three things and how 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 important they are and how a lot of people think the plot's really important or like when you talk about the theme, you know, uh, you know, there's some people who write books because they they want to bully pulpit. And all you're getting is is the sermon, which brings up that analytic brain that goes, "No one tells me what to do." Right? Don't read any further. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And and yet there's this, and and it's something we all know about the protagonist Mm -hmm. issue because it's like you know you know why is this person in this story in the story you know how how you know what are Mm -hmm. they trying to do to get to the end? But I I think there's a great way in which you you talk about the the protagonists uh issues because it's a very it 
it, and the importance of story being connected to it mm-hmm. and, the, and how well, that's that, what the story is. Right, exactly. I mean, the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems that writers make is they mistake the plot for the story. They think the story is about the plot and that's why this is one of those real incendiary things. You might turn the microphone off now. <laughs> but like if I could burn every copy, this is gonna, you're going to kill me for this, of the hero's journey, right? I would burn it in a heart. I will kill you for yeah, this. But, but I totally – And I totally right. get it yes, what, why yeah. you're saying this. But the reason is, is because and, – and same thing with this operation. With Chris Vogler's book, The Heroes, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Because it's this external story structure. Right. This has to happen here. So people – People make plots where things happen, right. and then they run somebody through it. And that's not what a story is about. Stories about how the plot affects the protagonist. Yes. The protagonist comes in wanting something. The protagonist has some reason why they can't get it, some deep-seated reason that comes from their past. And then a plot is constructed to force the protagonist to go through a series of events that's going to make them deal with that issue in order for them to get what they want. And you can you can just look at this in something as simple as the movie – Die Hard mm-hmm. is, you know, perfectly shows this because the plot of Die Hard is what? He gets to Nakitoma Plaza for, I, I'm assuming everybody knows I'm the sure. original Die Hard, yes, right? Exactly. It's like we know it as well as we know the story of St. Nick. Anyway, right. which I'm assuming we know too. Um, but, you know, he gets to Nakitoma Plaza and they're, they're bad guys and he's got to kill all the terrorists to save everybody. That's a plot. Is that right. what Die Hard is about? No. Of course not. Die Hard is about whether or not he gets his wife back. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem that predates the story. And really what it's about is, what does he have to learn in order to get his wife back? Right. And that – and what is that? And if you look and at that – And what does he have to face within himself? Right. Well, that's what he has to and, learn. And overcome. Right. Exactly. Right. how did he lose her? You know, she says, I've got this great job. I'm moving to Los Angeles. He's a New York City cop. Right. He's like, I'm not going with you. And he's got these two reasons. One is like, I'm the guy. What part of that don't you get? It's 1988. So well, he might say it now, but for sure in 88, like, I'm right. the guy. Right. And the other thing was I define myself by being a New York City cop. That's who I am. Mm. We don't want our identity messed with. That's me. If I go to L.A., I can't be in New York City. I won't be me. I won't know what's going on. Right. So what does he hope that's going to happen? He hopes she's going to go bomb out and come back and he'll be the big man and won't say, I told you so, and he'll take her back. And in stories, just like life, nothing ever goes back to normal. Again, so he goes through and he's got to be pushed through as we watch, as he's slowly realizing how much she means to him. Right. And that he can be himself no matter where he is. Right. And that being so macho didn't help him at all. And you get to that, that scene in the middle, you know, where he's talking to Al and when he's got that bad feeling. They always get that bad feeling where they think all is going to be lost. And he goes, you know, Al, I don't think I'm going to make it. And, you know, when this is over, find my wife. Don't ask me how. You'll, you'll figure it out by then. And tell her, honey, you always heard me say, you heard me say, I love you. A thousand times, but you never got to hear me say, honey, I am sorry. You know, and Al's crying and we're crying. Right, right. You know, and of course he does survive, but that's why we're rooting for him. We're not rooting for him just to survive because who cares? Right, right. We're rooting for him to survive so he can get his wife back. Right. And and there's something about wanting uh, getting that we want the protagonist to wake up. Right. You know, they're, they're kind of they're, – Always. Their unconscious motives are – are leading them astray in some way, and 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 there's there's a thing in particular, and I'm going to look for it here. Um, oh yes, a story's what happens if, affects someone who is trying to achieve what turns out to be a difficult goal, and how are she cha- how are he right. or she changes as a result, and and there's something about that about really understanding when you're a writer, and even if. You're a person like myself who writes mm. about myself. Same thing. It is the same thing because I was harder. Really, yeah, har- well, harder because it's harder to get perspective yeah, no on kidding. on your own unconscious right. motives, you know. And yet, thinking about you know rewriting my memoir right now, and it's like really focusing on 
you know, if you do that like full life thing, it's hard because it's like different sections of your life where you didn't have awareness about certain things. Right. And that's the interesting part. That's the part the reader wants to to get hooked into that part right. of the story. They want to they want to watch you stumble around until you find yourself. And they want to watch you make sense of it. They don't want to yes. just watch you stumble on the surface. Right. They want think of story as the difference between what you say out loud and what you're thinking, mm-hmm. right? Like the plot is the surface. Right. And we all understand the surface world really really well. We are sitting all of you are sitting in the surface world right now right. and you know what to do. What you're really wondering is what goes on beneath that world? Think about the difference in what you're saying and what you're thinking. And how often are those two things the same thing? Right. And which one's more interesting? Yeah. We want to feel how someone's making sense of it because often that's the stuff we don't say out loud. Well, and that's, you know, the, what you write about in the book about um, finding meaning for ourselves. The story mm-hmm. helps us in general. We're wired to find meaning. I mean, that's what humans do. We find 100%. meaning in and everything. And, but see, and just if I could just jump in there, Kelly, because people tend to think of that as, I think they think of things that are psychological and things that are physical as two different things, and they're not. Right. They're one thing. It all comes from the brain. We are wired to find meaning in everything. Why? Because it might hurt us. Because we want to know, will this help me or with, will it hurt me? Once we found that meaning, we completely ignore it and we move forward to the things that we are going to notice. Because that's what the conscious part of your brain is there for. You talk about... deal with things that we don't understand what they are. Yeah. And you talk about um, in, in that part of the book where there's uh, some sort of research where there's people who... Um, uh, their emotions are cut off oh. in their brain. Want to hear the real? I, yeah. And they try to, and they and they need to make choices about I mean, something. I'll tell you an interesting story. If you, it's a great story. If you have time for, um, there's an amazing neuroscientist. His name is Antonio Damasio. He's out of USC, and his he's written lots of books. His most recent is called Self Comes to Mind: Creating the Conscious Brain. And he often writes about this patient. He had this man by the name of Elliot, and Elliot was a really successful guy. He had a great career, wonderful marriage. He was a good father, like a pillar of his community type. And he also had a benign brain tumor, and it was successfully removed, but along with a bit of his prefrontal cortex. And after that, his life just fell apart. It, he was in the process of losing his job and losing his family when he went to Damasio and said, you know, what's happening to me? I'm not me anymore. And Damasio ran a large battery of tests and discovered that Elliot had lost the ability to feel emotion. Now, keep in mind, he still tested in the 97th percentile in intelligence, and he could enumerate every possible solution to every problem. Right. He just couldn't pick one. He'd go into his office every morning and go, I wonder what I should do. Should I do that thing my boss has been bugging me to do for the past three weeks or alphabetize my file folders again? You know, at right. lunch, he'd go from restaurant to restaurant looking at menus and he never went in wow. because he didn't know what he felt like eating. And the problem is, is we tend to think that when we make decisions, it's based on logic, right? right. We're told to, when you want to make a decision, you marshal all the pros facts. and cons, right. all that right. stuff. And you look at it objectively, right? In the cold right. light of reason, and you keep emotion at bay because it's going to cloud your judgment. And that's a really nice, very, so you see why we would think that. It's very safe. It makes us feel like we can logically do the right thing and we'll know what it is and it's very safe. Yes. It just happens to be not at all how we make decisions <laughs> at all. We feel first and think second. <sighs> Everything we do is emotion driven. The takeaway is emotion isn't the monkey wrench in the system. Emotion is the system. Wow. I mean, the problem is, is that people tend to think of emotion 
And they think of emotional. You know, right. You're going to run away with you. You're just going to do whatever you feel it's like. It's right. Well, it's irrational. Right. Exactly. It's going to cloud your thinking. Yes. You know, and all of that. And yet without it, it seems like they're really – you can have thinking, right. but it's kind of worthless. But because what's wrong is how we look at emotion. Mm-hmm. Because emotion is just feeling. And feeling is our brain's brilliant shorthand way of telling us, yes, this is good for you. Yes, this is safe. No, that isn't. Yes, I – because watch any decision you make. Any decision you make, you will have an accompanying feeling. Yes. Even, and it might be, oh yeah, I'm going to go eat that cake at midnight. And you want to, you feel that. But then you kind of go, well, you know, I might feel bad in the morning about the other. And you're still going to have a feeling even when you decide, okay, fine, I won't eat the cake. Right, right. (laughs) People who don't have feelings, think of what scares us the most. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but I remember after that really horrific Adam Lanza at, 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 um, Mm -hmm. at Sandy, Sandy Hook. Yes. And what were they saying? And you saw his face, and they were saying the most frightening thing about him is he was emotionless. Yes. You looked at him, and he nothing – why is it we're so afraid of emotions, and yet nothing scares us more than an emotionless face? Right, right. Or the idea of, of, of um, uh, robots, you know, this, this, you know, these robots getting these – Exactly. Uh, this intelligence, you know, and that they, but they're not going to have emotion. They're not going to be – and so, yeah, this is, this is the big uh, uh, difficulty right. for these people creating this artificial intelligence is because they have to find a way to – Hardwire in the emotional system, right? Which to, is to have how preference. We, how we, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, and true. preference is everything, you know. Especially when you know when you're talking about writing story, that you know you there's only there's only a certain amount of words you're going to mm-hmm. put in your book. Right. There's only gonna, a certain amount of things you're going to f- let the leader right. the reader yeah. focus on. Right. And it has to be everything inside your book or story, whatever it is, has to be there in some ways to show and to challenge or to reveal right. you know your protagonist having to deal with preference the, diffi- right, the, the difficult difficulty thing that your plot is constructed right. to force them to have to make to a deal choice with. in some way right right exactly right and that's i think that becomes a great i like to call it a yardstick yeah. that lets you evaluate the meaning of everything if you're the reader and if you're the writer it's a yardstick cuz it lets you evaluate the Gee, does my reader really need to know this? Am I going off into some sort of uh, digression that's not going to get me back? That's going to have nothing to do with the story I'm telling. Because the thing to keep in mind is when you're and watch this now, when you're reading or watching a movie or anything, you naturally assume. And again, your cognitive subconscious—you're not thinking this, right? But your natural baseline assumption is is that everything the writer's telling you has, is there on a need-to-know basis. Mm-hmm. If you didn't need to know it, they wouldn't bother telling you. So as a writer, if you throw something in because you think it's nice or you think it's interesting, but it has nothing to do with your story, it's going to stop the story cold because the reader doesn't know that. Yes. So they're going to assign it a meaning. And by definition, it's going to be the wrong meaning. Right, right. Because it doesn't really have any meaning. Right. Yeah. And so now they're off on some different story. <laughs> and very and soon, because they're making meaning out of it. Right. Exactly. Oh, interesting. And right. very soon the story doesn't make sense. And I mean, the thing to keep in mind is what keeps us reading is not the beautiful language ever or the beautiful sentences. It's the story beneath them. Language is the handmade of story. Yes, it has to serve not it. Not the other way around. And that yeah. is the biggest mistake that writers make. They're taught, oh, it's about the beautiful sentences. Oh, I, I'm, I'm a word. Well, and this, I is, love language. and this is the most difficult part because right. it is the killing of your babies. Because yeah. when you do write a beautiful sentence, uh, there's something you feel close to God. I right. mean, it's just as simple as that. <laughs> You feel the gods are just working through right. you. And um, and yet if it's not serving the whole purpose, right. 
right. you have to be brutal with it and you do have to kill it. And you can put it in your pile of, right. you know, babies that have been killed and maybe I can use it somewhere else kind of a thing. But, but you never um, do. But it's no, so, you never you do. You put it in that folder and you think I'll save it. Yeah. And then you never go into the folder again except to put other sentences. It's, it's true. <laughs> it's it's true. true. And you just have to let right. – you, what it is you have to trust is that another beautiful baby will be born that will actually serve the story in some way. Exactly. And the truth <laughs> is the writers who are successful and most successful writers I know are the ones who don't mind throwing stuff away at all, even if they love it. Yeah. I've worked with so many writers who have just, oh, yeah, I, I had to throw that whole draft away. And I think that comes with experience, don't you think? Yeah, I think it comes from experience and it, it comes from really realizing that writing is not about self-expression. It's about communication. Ah, and there you And you're just trying it. to express yourself. Who the hell? Nobody it's cares. It's journal writing. Right. No one cares. Write that for your journal. And I don't right. mean that in a mean way. No, right. But I mean, what you wouldn't care. You wouldn't want to read somebody else's journal. Exactly. It's, that's them. Right. You're reading to, you're writing to communicate. And that's really something, which means you have to communicate it in a language that people are going to hear. Right. And that means that they have to want to know what happens next. The key, the biggest thing, if you take nothing away, it's what pulls us in is that dopamine. And dopamine is spurred by curiosity. It's your brain's way of making you reward your curiosity by, by reading forward and finding out what happens right. next. It feels good. We all know that great feeling where we can't stop reading. <laughs> yes, we've out. all had those books. Right. What happens? That is what's biological. And if you don't want that when you're reading, if you don't want to know what happens next, nothing else matters. It's known in the trade. Even if you have great, interesting characters, good dialogue, good scenes, but it's not going anywhere. Right. It's known in the trade. It's a beautifully written, who cares? Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because I have picked up books that, um, from, you know, big authors and people love yeah. these books. And sometimes though, I, it drives me crazy when, uh, novelists mm -hmm. get stuck in so inside of describing something right that uh, it's it's i don't after a while it, i do get the who cares it's yeah. like i i don't really care Every single detail of this person's living room, you know. Exactly. I mean, a test. Yeah, I mean, I kick. You know, living. You know, there's certain things you need to. I need to know about the living room to understand the character. Then great, but when you have to describe every little thing about it, and I do, I just is like, oh, let's get to the where's 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 the dialogue? What's the dialogue? You're sitting there going, like when somebody's telling you a long rambly story. Yes. What's the point? Right. If you know what the point is, you don't know what, and then it all. It's like it's like I always think of like dropping a jar of ball bearings. They're all bouncing all over. And you don't know. And the other thing that does is it shuts the reader out. The more you describe something, right. the less room there is for the reader to see their version of it. Mm -hmm. And so now I feel like, okay, you're doing my job for me. Stop. You just want to give us enough so that it's got some sort of subtext. Always. Right. Description without subtext is just a travel log or right. who cares? <laughs> right. A description in a you know, in a in, in a in an art journal of this is what that it's that painting. Right. Who cares? Right. You want to make us feel something and you wanna pull us forward. And what we're really looking for is how is this affecting that character? How are they making sense of it? Because isn't that just think about it in your own life. You know, people come up to you and go, you know, Matilda, I'll love you forever. It's like what are you always thinking besides my name's not Matilda? It's <laughs> do you really mean it? Can I trust you? Right. Why do you like me? You are always looking at everybody and going, what do you really think of me? Uh -huh. What do you really think? What are you really hearing? That's what we turn to story for, what a person might really be thinking. And also the scary things we're thinking that we don't want to admit. And we go, oh my God, other people think those things too. Thank God I'm not the only one. We yeah. come to story for the me too. Yeah, absolutely. I know when I read, um, even read biographies, I mean, that's certainly, mm -hmm. you know, and I read a lot of artist biography. I'm always looking for the clues of, um, you know, how how did they make it through being a human being and finding their way through right. their creative life yeah. and the choices they made? And it's so interesting because 
I don't have to find some kind of path to follow, mm-hmm. but I'm. But you are. You're always comparing yourself. Always to the whether it's a real life protagonist or not. You're always saying, "Oh, I wouldn't do that," or "I would do that." Absolutely. Or we run everything through everything. Absolutely. But we're wired. I mean, you think about it. It makes sense. It does. I think the biggest problem that I have with all of it is that often it's seen as pejorative. The way that we think of everything in terms of how will it affect me? Yeah, and it's not right. We it's don't want to be narcissists. Ju- right. It's just how we're wired. Because what else do you have to? Ju- judge and to tell, well, what's safe and what isn't? Well, what does this mean or not? Right. It doesn't make us selfish. And, and here we are just trying to get this um, little organism through life here. Right. Because <laughs> we're biologically determined to procreate and survive. And that's, that's it makes total, total sense. And I think so much of what, like that thing that they say to people about, don't be so negative, right? You always get that from people. Right. Don't be so, what's wrong with you? You always jump to the worst case scenario. And you go, okay, well, guess what? Here's the thing. And then we think, oh, there's something wrong with me. Not only did I jump to the worst case scenario, but about this thing. So here's a scenario I'm worried about, but I'm so negative and I do that. I'm going to worry about that too. And the fact <laughs> of the matter is, why do we do it? Because we, ha- we're, we have what's called an over-agency for worry. Mm. In other words, if you walk by a stick a hundred times and mistake it for a snake, jump to that worst case scenario, right. you're going to be fine. Right. You walk by one snake and think it's a stick and you are dead. Right. So we're hardwired <laughs> yes. to jump to that worst case. That doesn't mean we have to stay here, but it also means we don't have to beat ourselves up for doing it. Well, you know, and it's, a, it's an interesting point too, because, um, you know, it's the same thing with memory and trauma. The reason we remember the not so good times is because they are information to help us survive to avoid that. Absolutely. In the future, and and it's so interesting that we spend so much of our life trying to let go of these negative moments now in order to free ourselves to feel, you know, so we can unlearn the the, the old narratives. Right. I mean, that's literally what but, I call it with my clients. Those, when you and when you talk about trauma, so much of it is we hold on to it physically. Yes, it's like because that's what it's a in feeling yourself. is. A feeling isn't some like ephemeral, you know, thing that right. Comes. It's not invisible. It's 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 literally a physical sensation, a feeling that comes from 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 the the biological impulses you're getting when something happens. It says, yes. oh my God, the last time this happened, remember what happened? You were in big danger. You better run. Mm-hmm. And that's why we will have those inappropriate responses because whatever that situation was isn't happening anymore. Right, right. But instead of beating ourselves up for it, because I think, I think mental health and physical health are the same thing. Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And it's so, it's so funny because um, I was writing a screenplay. This is years ago mm-hmm. and I haven't finished it yet because I knew I had to go and live my life a little bit more to mm-hmm. finish this particular thing. And, and reading this book now, thinking about like how I want to go back with it and, and kind of dig in with some of this knowledge. But one of the hardest things that, for me to do mm-hmm. in the screenplay was to, was to traumatize my protagonist. <laughs> Oh, it's so true. <laughs> and you talk about yeah. in the book here how right. you have to be a little bit of a sadist. Totally. In order to really put your protagonist through the paces. And I love the way you frame it. And I don't know if you framed it on this mm-hmm. way on purpose or if this is the meaning I pulled out mm-hmm. of it. But it's like – not only does the you ha- it's it's good for your protagonist because your protagonist is going to learn from it, right. but even on a broader scale, I was thinking it's good because the reader is going to learn from it. And Absolutely. part of what I love being on the planet about is kind of sharing tidbits about how we're going to make it through life together. That's what stories for. Yes, that's what we turn to stories exactly. For. And I, and I and I Completely. don't want to do it with my bully pulpit. I mean, right. I, I and there's appropriate places to do right. that, you know, as a teacher and and as a coach and places like that, but. Um, but but it was like, oh, I see. So I can actually reframe my own narrative about being a sadist with my protagonist because it's good for the planet. 
right. It's true, though. It really is true. I mean, you really do have to be. I mean, that is a big mistake writers make. They're too nice. They yes. fall in love with them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It's like, no, you have to embarrass them. You right. have to stand them on that, and ha- on that. And you literally, like, as you're writing it. It hurts. It hurts. It's totally. You're, like, going, oh, I'm so embarrassed for this person. Or, oh, I feel so pained right now because right. I'm making this person. Because social mortification is worse than it's easier to shoot them than it is to, to mortify them. <laughs> yes. That's way harder. Yes. You know, but that's the only – think, but think about any book you've ever read or person that you knew. Every story is about I was pushed beyond what I thought I could do. Completely. That's the only way we find out. We only learn by experience. And, it, and certainly the only reason I'm, I'm turning yeah. the page right? because it's like – Oh shit, now that's happening? Yeah. How the fuck is he going to get through that? Exactly, because it makes you want to know, and what would I do, and what would it feel like? And boy, that's so different than when they go, and maybe they don't do what you think the right thing would be. It's like, oh no, don't. Yeah. But they're going to learn something from that, and then you see what that is. But but writers really do, they don't have a really good, strong force of opposition that just gets strong. It's a great anecdote I love. Someone once asked JFK how he became a war hero, mm-hmm. and he said, I didn't have a choice. They sank my boat. <laughs> That. It's like you have to sink your character's boat, yeah, bit by bit. Yeah, every time they think they've got a place to hide, you got to pull the rug out from under them until they get to that one place. Because when we talked about that internal issue, I mean, that's what stories in life are like. I want to get this thing, but I want to give as little as possible in order to get it. Right. And right. I don't want to have to change too much. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and the story forces them to get to that one thing they didn't want to change, that one belief they didn't want to give up, that one thing they were sure was true. Right. And we only get to that when everything else has been stripped away. Yeah. And so that's why a plot's much easier to develop if you understand, well, what is that going to be? Because then you can look at these external things that are going to happen. And think, what are the things that really right. are going to for, you know, force right. this character to, exactly. to face themselves? And coming back to theme, that third element is, well, I mean, theme, people talk about theme as if it's some big esoteric something and right. I'll figure it out later. Theme is something really very simple. It's just what are you saying about what it means to be human? Hmm. What are you saying about human nature? What are you saying? You might be saying something about love. Well, is it that love is going to save the day? So if your character gives up everything they've got, they're going to get their sweetheart, and even if they have to live in a cardboard box, that'll be worth it? Right. Is that your theme? Right. Now you know how people are going to treat your character because you know what they have to go through. Or is your theme love is for fools, and if they give up everything that they you know, give up everything for love, they're surely going to lose because love's a con game, and now they've got nothing to bait and switch with anymore. So they're mm-hmm. going to be totally unhappy. Mm-hmm. So giving things up for love, only an idiot would do that. Mm-hmm. Which, what's your worldview? Mm-hmm. How is that going to play out in your story? And as you can see, same theme, same basic idea. Somebody gives up everything for love. Right. But in terms of how you decide that theme The is bigger play meaning out, of it. Right. Exactly. Right. And you see that the world and those events are therefore going to treat your protagonist very differently, mm-hmm. depending on which way you want to go. So it really can help figuring these things out in advance. I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. I know people want to be pantsers. Yeah, let's talk about that. Want, yeah. Let's talk about outlining yeah. because uh, there is a real, you know, people are really on one side or the I other know. about it. And, uh, you know, and some people, I mean, I know I write, I sit down and I, I write my essays for the show and, and generally they're, you know, I, they come out of me. Sometimes I change a few words. Sometimes mm-hmm. I have to, I started one a few weeks ago and had to put it aside because it, I was too close to it right. and came back to it this week. And, but, um, you know, but then, but when, but you're doing something long form right. like a novel or a screenplay, you know, there, it's a lot to juggle and to know, and it's hard Absolutely. to, you know, I, I had a, a Greg Miller on 
uh, a couple of months ago, and we talked about that, you know, how most writers get lost mm-hmm. in the second act. They get lost in the plot because yeah. they don't have a story. They yeah. think it's about the plot. I'll, I'll, I'll fool around in my plot, and I'll try to find the story. Right. And it doesn't work that way. And, and one of the biggest problems, I think, is the way writing's taught and the fact that writing is often taught by very, very successful writers. Right. And that is who probably naturally know how to do what you're talking about. Some people have the same way. Look at great athletes. Why do you think they say the best athletes make the worst coaches? Right. Because they can't break it down. Yes. Because they could write, these great writers, they have this natural sense of story. Mm -hmm. They can write a laundry list and you are sobbing over the plight of poorly sorted socks. (laughs) It just (laughs) happens that way. So what do they think? They think that what pulls people in is the beautiful writing. Right. And that's what they teach. Mm. And it just couldn't be less true. And they can... What's that E.L. Doctorow famous saying where he says you can you can write a novel the same way you can drive a car and you know your headlights at night? Yes. You go, totally you're... untrue. If you're him, yeah. Then you're going to write <laughs> ragtime. If you're everybody else, you're going to write yourself into a corner. And the thing that kills me is then you'll tell yourself, you'll go back and you'll reread it and it won't make any sense. And you'll go, I guess I'm not I'm a not writer. a writer. And you'll put it on the shelf and right. you'll never do and it And you'll again. feel bad about yourself. Right, right. And there's nothing to do with you being a good writer. But you really do need to figure out what do you – there's plenty of room for pantsing once you know that part. Right. Going forward and letting your creativity out. But writing is communication. If you don't know what your story is, who you're writing about – I'm just working on something right now about how to define your premise that goes into exactly mm. this. Because most people go in and they just start writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean I can say that having read – thousands of manuscripts doesn't work. Now, uh, yeah, and and so I'm I'm working on a project right now. It's um and it came in one of those bursts of inspiration. Like uh, the cold uh, I'm, you know, working on a TV thing. The cold opening came to me. Right. And it feels like in the cold opening there's everything everything about the whole entire journey of this person in the show is really lives inside that wow. cold, yeah, that cold yeah. opening in some ways. You know, it's like, it's like one of those vision things that came. And yet I can see then how kind of now pulling back and analyzing that cold opening for myself and really seeing what she's facing, right. the choice she makes in the cold opening, the world she lives what in. What made the, her make that choice? Right. What right. happened to her in the past that made her make that? It, yes, yeah. exactly. And then taking all that information and plugging that in in such a way so that as as you go forward in the in in not only just the episode mm-hmm. but the full right. story arc let's right. say of the bible of the oh, show yeah. understanding what it is that's making her tick and really checking is this scene you know or is this episode right. about that bigger journey for right. her which i think is the best i have to say i think long form tv is the best writing out there it, true so much it's the golden age right now oh. of something it's oh. it's really interesting what's happening yeah, in television it's just yeah there's great great artists working on those shows are. yeah i T- mean saying big things about our culture and doing it with fascinating I've characters seen. i mean i when, when i talk to people about what's going on in the world i want to say okay you have to watch the fourth season of the wire and then come back and talk yes, to me. Totally. you have to get there you'll have yeah the first two seasons aren't, aren't so great right but you have to are wa- worth it right yeah you have to watch them but you have to that. watch them to get there. Right. Yes. Watch The Sopranos. Yeah. Now watch Nurse Jackie. Yes. I mean, there's just so much that is being said and done. Watch Breaking Bad. I mean, yeah. the Breaking Bad, one arc in all the seasons, although I'm, I don't think it's been so good lately, but but boy, did it have a good run there in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really wonderful, but it doesn't. That's hard to do because it is. it does have to shift, you know, all the way through. But you're right. You need to know who that character is. I mean, the way to think about it is, is that the way that we process information is that is that 
everything that's happened to us up to this moment is what we use. That's our mm. the, the, the lens through which we see and judge and right. decide everything we do. Right. If you don't know that about your characters, how can you know why they're doing what they're doing? You just know it on a surface reason. Well, she's not going to look both ways to cross the street because she knows she's going to get hit. Well, we all know that. Right. We want that deeper thing as to, well, who is she exactly and why is she acting that way based on who she is. Right. Story isn't about the Everything, people. right. It's about her. A person. It's a great right. book. I just read that. I don't recommend this book. It's a great, great book. It's called, I hope I get this right. I always get, I think it's called Before I Go to Sleep. And it's really, it was a bestseller. It's kind of a mystery. And the reason it's interesting, just for writers who go, oh, I don't need to know that. I'll just write forward. Mm-hmm. Is that the plot is that there's a woman who's had some sort of a traumatic, she's been beaten and she wakes up and she has no memory of anything. And mm. she finds out that um, it happened, I guess, I don't know how many years ago, like 20 years ago. Like she thinks she's in her 20s and she's in her mid 40s. Mm. And she, every night, she can form memories in the day, but every night she goes to sleep and she forgets them. So it's kind of like Groundhog Day, opposite of Groundhog Day or something. Like Groundhog Day, Memento. (laughs) But but the point is, and what's really interesting about it is in it, you see how much she struggles to figure out what's going on based on the fact that she has no memory of her past. When you're writing a character and you don't know anything about their past, that's who that person is. And you see how... You, it's not a bad book. But. So, so when you when you approach outlining, then and suggest people to approach outlining, um, so you're outline you are outlining plot, but you're doing it from all of this other right. information. The first thing I always say is, okay, what's your premise? Like, what is that question? What would happen if? Because pre- I've seen premises stated as a as a statement. You know, I, I saw one the other day. It was like a you know, Romeo and Juliet is about um, when two kids can't can't get married. Um, two kids fall in love, can't get married, so they commit suicide. That's not a premise. No. That, that's what happened. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> premise. Yeah. premise, that would be what, what happens when two kids can't get married mm-hmm. and their parent, you know. But a premise asks a question. So you have that first, and then you really figure out, well, who is that going to affect? Mm-hmm. Whose story is it? And you need to know that person mm. first before you can do anything with a plot. Right. And that comes down to who are they? What do they want? Because mm-hmm. they come always come in wanting wanting something. something. Sure, as all humans right. do. We all want, and that's what. Think of a story as kind of like they want something. They've wanted it for quite a while, mm-hmm. but they haven't gone after it yet because there's something holding them back. And I don't like calling it a fatal flaw because I don't see it as a flaw. It might just be a misconception, something that sure. they, some belief they've got that's just 100 percent wrong, which we walk around with all day all, long. All the time. <laughs> Probably more that are wrong than are right. And then the story happens, so you know that, and you can kind of trace it up. And then the story happens when. Something fo- like like an event the boat gets forces sunk. them Something to confront. Happens. Finally, right to have to confront this, Ex- this right. thing that they wanted because you know how it is. What is it like when you want something, right? And it's going to be hard. You tell yourself, "Yeah, I'm going to do. I'm going to start exercising." Of course, I am <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. You know, or the next day. Right. Well, if you look on the calendar, that's a week from never. That's when that is. Uh-huh. And it only happens when I'm going to exercise. And now somebody calls up, and the the guy who you've loved since elementary school finally calls you up and goes, "I'm going to go climbing Mount Everest in a month. Do you want to come with me?" Okay. Now you got a reason why <laughs> you better get up and you know and go after and and do that. Yes. So it's we don't do anything. Uh-huh. We don't take any action because we're wired to resist change. We're right. wired to, once we're comfortable, it's called homeostasis, right. and once we're comfortable with how we are, we want to stick with it. Comfortable doesn't mean we like it. It's why yes. we stick with the devil we know, oh, God because knows. it's familiar. That's I my kn- first marriage. Yeah. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. Totally. You know, I knew how to deal with it. Right. I don't like it. I know the rules here. Exactly. <laughs> They're and crazy, so, but I know these rules. Right, because it's that unknown that we're so scared of. It yeah. could be worse out there. Yes. So at least with this, I'm safe. And stories start when that gets taken away from you. Yes. And now you got to explore 
uh-huh. the unknown. And then we find out what we're really made of what and what we really wanted. Yeah. And everything changes. And it's just like in life. And stories are run through. Stories are simulations. The, the way we simulate, what would that feel like? That's why story isn't about what happens on the surface. It's about how it affects the protagonist, which is something that writers are often, again, in those writing classes told not to do. Don't take us into the character's head. Everything's in the character's head. <laughs> go home and look at, I'm telling all you people, I go home. Um, but look at any book written in the third person and you'll see that you are almost always, whether it's third person limited or omniscient. Yeah, I love that part head. of your book. You really showed that no matter what, you're immediately inside the character's head. In that head. character's head. And, yeah. and it's that writers do it so well mm-hmm. that you don't realize it's very subtle. doing it. Yeah. Right. That's why I'm telling you, go home and take a look and you'll see. You go, no, they're not giving me thoughts all the time. Right. That would be awful. Yes, like, they yeah, are. Yeah, they are. All the time. Yeah. Because that's where the story lives and breathes. Well, and that certainly is is the realm of the novel, is is the inner life. Right. You know, and and I, uh, and so uh, the difference between novel writing and let's say screenplay writing, right. you know, there, there is a real difference. So, so with novel writing, you do get the luxury of, you can speak, you can write out loud right. what your character is thinking, you know, which helps Then we, then we're inside their skin more and, right. and we see how wrong their thinking can right. be at exactly. any moment, certainly, <laughs> but we're, but we're kind of walking around in their shell with them. Right. We are literally. Yeah, literally. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of, in some ways it, it's got the advantage of that. And then there's this other writing that a lot of people do in the right. world, you know, screenwriting and TV writing. And how how do you um, suggest that writers help us? I mean, it's, it's all showing and there's no telling. I th- Well, I th- so it's behavior. Yeah, I think it's behavior. It's certainly, I mean, talk about your mirror neurons because your mirror neurons are what happens when it's like when you out there, when you out there are talking to someone else mm-hmm. and you're looking at them, there are neurons in your forehead and in your face that, and you don't realize this is happening, but that are literally physically mirroring the face of the person looking at you and you're reading them. Yes. You know, can I trust you? Can I not trust you? Are you interested? Is your interest? In fact, right. a really interesting thing, they say that people who get Botox <laughs> have a real hard time with empathy because they can't the mirror neurons can't function. They can't wow. mirror the physical expressions. Isn't that interesting? I'm fascinated yeah, by that. Yeah, lots of studies on that. Really interesting. You look that one up immediately. Yes, totally. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, we're feeling what that person's feeling. So I think often, it's like, it's like you'll have it in a review of, of a movie where you'll read something and there's some line that the reviewer's pulled out and you go, that doesn't sound so great. And then you watch it in the scene, you go, oh, wow, I get it. So yeah, I think a lot of it is in in all of that. But the thing is, if you're writing a movie, uh-huh. you still need to know all this stuff. Yes. Some of it comes up in dialogue, but you can't write a character who has these feelings about things. Maybe Because even... you've got to embody the exactly. character as you're writing it. Yes. And yeah. think about a movie like The King's Speech. Mm. You know, what makes him not be able to talk? What is that? Because I mean, it's not about a speech like, well, will he be able to give the speech to, you know, to all of England? Right. That's the plot. <laughs> but it's, right. But it's, will he be able to speak to one person? And mm. what's he holding? And why is he afraid? of it. In that movie, you do get a scene. That, now, you don't always get that scene, right. but that shows you that's what happened. Yes. And when you see that, you understand every way that he's been. They've given you sort of little tells mm-hmm. all along the way. And yeah, it's but you still have to know that. And good screenwriters know that. And bad screenwriters just give you a bunch of stuff <laughs> that happens. And it really is. So can I tell you one anecdote real quickly? Yes, please, or, please. Yeah. Um, my son, who I'm very proud of, um, uh, went to NYU and he graduated from Tisch a year ago. And when he was in NYU, like most kids, he had a bunch of internships. And his first internship was a, this really small production company that made one movie that you never heard of. Um, and they were looking for their next feature. So they read everything that came in through the transom. Mm-hmm. And he was writing coverage. 
right. in LA, so I can I can just say coverage. And well, people it's will know. it's it's, okay, a, it's yeah. an international. So coverage okay. is basically when you read a script and then you you analyze it right. basically and tell yes. the plot and the story and the characters and you and if then you, you let think the, it should be a movie. Then you right. let the important people know yes. you can put money into this or not. Right. Yeah, and yes, that is true. That, that you know, it is college students who are deciding whether or not they are the gatekeepers. Yes, there's a reality. Yeah, that <laughs> <laughs> is very true. Um, but they're usually really savvy. Anyway, so he worked for that company. Was an intern for that company. I think he read like 50 scripts, 100 scripts. Mm-hmm. And then he got uh, an internship at a very different company, the Weinstein Company, uh-huh. which is where he works. I'm very proud of him. He's actually the, working the, there now. The big, the big boys. The big boys, right. Uh-huh. And he got, he got, uh, he got um, an internship there just as, as the King's Speech was uh, being um, – was, was getting an Academy Award for Best Picture. Wow. And he called me up that night and he said, you know, I got in and the guy I was going to work for was, had been out sick. And so he came in that day and he said, you know what, I have nothing for you to do, but here, I just want you to read a bunch of scripts just to see what we have in production so you can, you know, you can see what we're looking for. And he read the scripts and he called me up and he said, you know, it was really interesting, the difference between the scripts at this small company where things just came in through the transom and the Weinstein Company. He said it wasn't just that the Weinstein Company scripts were better written. He said they were, but they weren't that much better written. Right. He said the difference was at the other company, it was just a bunch of things that happened and no one wanted anything and nobody cared about anything other than getting out of whatever situation it was they uh-huh. were in and it was 100% boring. The Weinstein Company, everybody came in wanting something. You knew why what happened was mattering to those characters. You saw how it was affecting them and you saw how they were pushing the action all the way through. He said it was night and day. Wow. Wow. So so this idea of reading bad things, be, reading bad <laughs> manuscripts or bad scripts is actually can be really educational because oh, absolutely. you can see the difference between and feel the difference, really, more importantly, right. feel the difference well, the problem between with, good and bad right, writing. With reading a good book to, to learn how to write, people will tell you, well, read good books to learn how to write. Worst advice ever. Mm. Because the first job of a good story is to anesthetize that part of your brain that knows <laughs> right. it is a story. So, right, you, you it go feels into like reality. Right. Yes. You're, you're, there's no way you can analyze yeah, it. Yeah, but, and, and what do you see? You see the beautiful sentences. So right. You think that's what it is. <laughs> that's how we make that mistake. Right, right. But when you read something that doesn't work, which is what I did, is how I learned everything I learned. Yeah. Was, you know, I don't want to say how many years, but several decades uh-huh. of reading really bad scripts and going, why isn't this working? What am I expecting that I'm not getting? Right, right. And that's what you get when you read really, really bad things. Mm-hmm. You go, okay, why? And if you have to analyze them, mm-hmm. why isn't this giving me what I'm looking yeah. for? What am I looking for? And that's how I, I really well, learned everything. What do you suggest to writers who um, – who let's say they they finished the first draft mm-hmm. of something, the long form yeah. of something, uh, or a short story or whatever it is, and um, and they give it around a or whatever, right. and it's it's being rejected and rejected, and it's it's you know getting the same notes, right. which is you know it's it's okay, but it's not great, right. and so they know they've got to rewrite something. How do you, how does one approach the rewrite? I mean, is it really about shelving the whole thing or? I mean, does I mean how? If you, sometimes it feels like, oh, just uh, yeah. put it in the trash, you know, and start over. <laughs> but is there a way? It, sometimes it just feels so daunting to me to have to get in there and right. undo things that you've done. And well, I think I mean, first of all. You never really give – not that you really – but you never give the first draft of anything to any – Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I mean, talking like several drafts, I, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. At, at that point, I really think – I mean, yeah, you could put it aside for a while. But I don't think – and no writer I know approaches rewrites by themselves. Uh-huh. Interesting. Everybody 
works with somebody else. Right. Everybody has someone. Because you need the objective. Not your mom, not your friend, (laughs) and not another writer. God, not your mother. Yeah, right. Definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. But not friends and not another writer. Mm. Someone whose job it is. Someone who is an editor, someone who's an agent, someone who, you know, like me works one-on-one with writing. There there are tons of people. UCLA has a a program that you can do it through. Right. you, you get notes from someone. You get someone to tell you why it's not working. Because think about – when you've written something, the, the only thing you, a writer can never, ever, ever do is read their thing, their, their stories as if they've never read them. Exactly. Because you're seeing the whole world. Right. You understand right. all of it. Right. you got to give it to it's someone the, who doesn't. Right. It's the water you, you, you swim in if you're a fish. You know, yeah, it's the air you water? breathe. If you're a fish. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What yeah. water? Yeah. And so it is really hard to – to get that discernment. You can't. You mm-hmm. especially these days, if mm-hmm. you want to get be traditionally published. And I think I mean, or if you're going to self publish, if you want anybody to read your work. Right. Um, yeah. You need so, someone with a professional eye. Yeah. I mean, without that, you're just not gonna and, and professionals use it. It's not like it's not like, oh yeah, you amateurs do that and the pros, we don't need it. Right. I work with somebody. Everybody works with somebody. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you always, you know, you read the best novelists out there or or any of the writers and there's always this long list of thank yous mm, because yeah. all those people read and reread and right. gave notes and said, you know, this is great part of it and this is I don't understand right. it. Right. What are you get talking it. about here? I don't get it. Or did you mean this? You're going, oh my God, I, I so didn't mean that. <laughs> right. Oh, that's what you thought yeah. I meant. Right. <laughs> it's landing like that. The, the, you know, it, it's interesting too, you know, there. I think it comes with experience to learn how to take feedback also. Oh, it's true. really, really important. Yeah. And that it's not personal Mm-mm. and that exactly. you have to if enough people are saying the same thing about yeah. something, then most likely, no matter what your intention is about right. that section or that person or that thing, that's the way it's landing. Yeah. And no, if you want, true. if you want readers or people to watch your movies mm-hmm. or your television shows, you know, that's people are going to have an, you're going to be, they're going to be impacted by it. And you want to know what your impact right. is. Absolutely true. And, and, and it, and I think I know for years I was always afraid of feedback and afraid of finding out my impact because I thought it was going to reflect on whether I was a worthy human being or not. And I so you have to learn to separate your Which is really worth, hard. It is really You'll hard. You'll still go under the bed and, and be in the fetal position and sob. <laughs> that it will hurt. It doesn't it never it will, doesn't but hurt. it doesn't mean you're unworthy. Right. It just means that your intention is not landing the way you wanted it right. to. I mean, everything. Think about it this way. I mean, what did they? What did Darwin say? It's not the fastest. It's not the. It's not the fastest. It's not the strongest. It's not the smartest to survive. It's those who are most able to adapt to changes. Mm. So there is no perfect. If something was perfect in two seconds, it wouldn't be perfect because the only constant is change. Right. So of course you have to learn and see and develop and move a story forward. By definition, I was working with a writer the other day who was saying because it's later. You can never go, okay, well, here's one draft. I've written a second draft. Now everything's fixed. <laughs> as you fix one layer, yes. another layer is going to poke out. I was working with one writer who said, yeah, he said, I'm just taking a, a class in, you know, in, in pottery. And it's like, yeah, when you push something in on one side and clay, it pokes out on the other. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, that's exactly yeah. true. Yeah. And it's just a matter of bringing it all together. I mean, look at it this way. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. It's 
hard. And mm. that's why people want writing to be easy. I think that's the biggest and saddest thing on one level. They want it to be easy. I'm just going to let it out and it'll be, and that's all I've got. I've got to feel for it. Right. It's really hard. Anyone it is. who tells you writing is easy is lying to you. Yeah. It's and, hard. And and it's, I think the, the challenge of it though is what makes it so satisfying that when right. you, you, you know, you, you write something down and it's not working and you get in there and you work it and work it and work it and you start to see it take a shape and you start to see it land in the way you want it to land, uh, that is such a moment of satisfaction. Oh, so um, but it but it takes it takes commitment and it, it takes willing to, right. to risk. You know, yeah. you have to be vulnerable in your in writing. Hundred percent. I mean, yeah. vol- I mean, two things. One, it's like that Dorothy Parker line: "I hate writing, but I love having written." Yes, <laughs> so completely. True. But you are vulnerable. I mean, what yeah. was it? I think it was I think it was P. D. James who said something like, "All, of course, all uh, all fi- all fiction is autobiography, and all autobiography is, of course, fiction." Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's you are opening yourself up. Yes, you are, and that's why writing is painful because you've got to go really deep because that's what the reader comes for. The reader comes for things that their friends aren't going to tell them. Uh-huh. The reader comes, especially prose. Prose is the only thing that takes us to that one place that technologically we still don't quite or we still aren't quite able to get to, which is to read someone else's mind. Yes. To know what they're thinking. Right. And think about because I remember noticing once that like whenever I was going through something really difficult in my life, like with my husband or my kids, I and I, I instead of thinking, what would my sister do? What would my mother do? What would my best friend do? Right. I'd think, what would Jim Anderson and Father Knows Best do? You know, what would Jack <laughs> Bauer in twenty four? How would he handle this? Right. And at first I thought, like, oh my God, I am like the shallowest person in the world. What's wrong with me? And then I realized that's what we turn to story for. Right. Because especially yes. in prose, because it's it's articulated beautifully. Right. It is laid out for you. Right. Even when your friends are going to let you into that deep, dark thing, are they going to be as articulate as, you know, Jane Austen? Right. Probably not. When they're struggling with stuff, they're probably just sobbing, you know, and they're incoherent. Right, right. This is going to take you down to that place where it's going to make you go, oh, yeah, that's what that really is. And and I think it it's what makes us who we are. I mean, yeah. the story is... We we think in story, like you said. Story. Mm. We look at everything. When you look at, we don't look at things objectively. We look at everything subjectively. A- absolutely, you know? absolutely. And and we have to I, end I with know. that. So, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, I'm going to say something brilliant at the end, <laughs> and I, my brain is completely dead because I have no more story in it. Uh, thank you, Lisa. This has been great. And oh, uh, everyone, please go out and and just eat this book up because you will get. So much. I was planning on having the whole thing read before this interview, and I was getting so much out of it that I had to like slow down and really like go, oh, yeah, what is this really? Yeah, ooh. So you'll really, really enjoy it. Once again, her name is Lisa Cron, C-R-O-N, and it's Wired for Story. And um, thank you. Thank you for writing this book, and uh, thank you for coming and talking about it, and uh, thank you for making the world a safer place for story. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kelly. There's nothing I like more than talking story with writers. So thank you. <laughs> my pleasure. So that was my conversation with Lisa Cron. And like I said, highly recommend the book. Um, makes me want to like go away for three weeks and like study everything I've ever written or like or trying to write and like, you know, piecemeal it down again. And really, uh, not that there's, you know, there's not a lot of heart and intuition in writing, but there's something about just having this little bit of information that like, was like, Oh, my God, aha moments times 10. 
So uh, looking forward to, to doing some of that work. Um, and uh, so catch me. I'm going to be out and about in the world a little bit in the next month or so. Um, if you're listening to this live or, um, you know, in the next few days, I'm going to be at Uncabaret here in L.A. on Sunday the 28th. Uh, talking a little bit about um, my Dallas trip and uh, but a little other other bits than that that I told on the, the show here. Uh, and then on May 11th, yes, May 11th, the anniversary of my mother's death, I will be at Anna David's storytelling show at the Mint, which will be fun. And I think I'm going to tell a story about my one night stand with Leif Garrett. Always a crowd pleaser, that show, that story. Uh, but most importantly, a Carlin Home Companion is going to be at the Acme Theater in Hollywood on Saturday, May 18th. Uh, if you haven't seen the show, uh, please come down and join me in the audience. Would love to see your smiling face. Uh, and uh, if you're a fan of my dad's, uh, I think it's pretty much a prerequisite. <laughs> I don't know a single fan who's seen the show who uh, just doesn't hug me afterwards. It's very, very satisfying to get hugs all across America. It's very lovely. So uh, I will be doing that. And uh, boy, is there anything else? No. Um, you know, hey, American Idol finals are getting there. Let me tell you, you know, we only got I got to watch the results show tonight, but only three girls left. That's been exciting. And um, uh, find me on Twitter. You people know, find me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. Find me on Facebook. I think it's Kelly Carlin official or official Kelly Carlin in the Facebook slot. Uh, come like me. Uh, I will not friend you. Uh, it's nothing personal. But if I've not hung out with you in the flesh and had at least a real conversation or done business with you in some real uh, significant way and, you know, bonded in that way, uh, I will not friend you. So you can send a request all you want and I will I will I will say no. It, and it, but like I said, it's not personal. It's just that I don't want to hear about your fucking in, events and invites and and your birthday. I mean, I'm sure your birthdays are lovely, but uh, I I you know I made that mistake earlier. Uh, so I'm not being a curmudgeon. I swear, I'm trying to just be a peaceful, serene human. Uh, and um, what else? Oh, uh, yes. Go to kellycarlin.com forward slash waking. And uh, there's a big PayPal button there. You know, it takes it takes a village to do this show, believe it or not. I know it's usually just my voice and, and the voice of my guest, but uh, it takes a village. And uh, we're hard at work here at bringing you the best of what we can bring. So if you want to support the work we do here, we would be thrilled by that. Truly thrilled. So go to kellycarlin.com forward slash waking and hit that PayPal button and... Uh, you know, $5, $7, $50, $700. We accept it all and it goes towards uh, all that needs to be paid for to put on a podcast and have a life that puts on a podcast for you. Uh, you guys have a great, beautiful weekend. I hope spring has hit most of the country by now. I was speaking to someone in Nebraska the other day and snow was falling. I'm hoping that is done with. It is April. It is the end of April, people. Let's move on. All right. Uh, kiss your loved ones. Hug your loved ones. Uh, and uh, wink at your enemies. It always confuses them. Uh, have a good one. Talk to you later. Move to New York. Got my eyes open wide. 
got a little bit angry, a little preoccupied. Shit's going down everywhere you look. Saw things I wanted to change, so I posted them on Facebook. <laughs> Sometimes it feels can't seem to change a thing. How's a lizard like me gonna stop global warming? It's so overwhelming. I just wanna quit, but then I think, wait, fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Sorry if you're seeing me swearing, but fuck this shit. Everybody, fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Mind you know you wanna say it. Fuck this shit. It's not about money. Except when you can't eat, it's not about foreclosures. Except when you got nowhere to sleep, it's not about elections. Except when they can be bought, and it's not about the wars. Except when they're fought, it's not about the environment. Except when we're running out of time, and it's not about my choices. Except when they're not mine, it's not the lack of justice. Except when you can't fight back, and it's not about the police unless um you're black. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Come on, you wanna say it, don't you? Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Don't worry, none of these people are at work tomorrow. Fuck this shit. Oh, I'm just a girl. I know. I shouldn't get pissed. They tell me to just talk pretty, but fuck that shit. Yeah, look, this is hard. I mean, we're all burning out. You bet. Sometimes you just want to climb back in bed and watch The Bachelorette. But what you gonna do? Just sit around and jerk off? I mean, that's important too. But at some point, you gotta stop. Might be tired of fighting. Might need to rest a bit. But tomorrow, I'll wake up thinking. And I'm back again. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Come on, you wanna sing it now? Fuck this shit. Yeah. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. I'm sorry. Tomorrow this is gonna be in your head all day. Fuck this shit. One more time. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Last one. Make it count. Fuck this shit. Yeah. Hey there, all you mites, it's Fat Kev Smith. Uh, hey man, it's Kev again, begging you for money. God damn it, can I have a loan? It's not even a loan. Give me money for free that I never intend to pay back. That's what we call ads here on uh, Smodcast.com, man. Uh, we send you to see Smod, to see live shows, and uh, what you pay to see in the live show, why that helps uh, fund our entire Smodco empire, man. That's how you get those Smodcasts for free, man. The sweet oral that makes your fucking mind gasm, ear pussy licking good. You buy tickets to live shows, man. That's how you get all the free podcasts. If we're near you, check us out. For example... April 27th, Chicago, don't forget, I'm going to be there for C2E2. My panel's sold out, but the event is still going on. There's, you can still get into C2E2 itself. And, man, you want to get there, man. Chicago's premier comic book convention. Check this out. Jay and Silent Bob, super groovy cartoon movie. April 24th, we're in Boston, Massachusetts, and the, at the House of Blues. And then Glenside, Pennsylvania is April 25th, the day of my anniversary with Jennifer Schwabach. 
uh, at the Keswick Theater, man. So that's the East Coast leg of the tour, uh, the first leg, if you will. Scoop up tickets uh, now. Me and Jay going to be there, show you the movie. The movie is funny as fuck, man. Iron Line is so fucking good. And then afterwards, Jay and Silent Bob get old podcasts. Uh, that you all be a part of because it's going to be a Q&A version so everyone's asking questions and shit. And we'll play Let Us Fuck and find out how long Jay's been sober and all that good stuff, man. But come on to the tour, man. Come on and come all over. It's face, neck, and fucking chest. Jay and Silent Bob's super groovy cartoon movie, Me and Muse, live right there in your hometown. Tickets at csmod.com slash movie or just go to csmod.com. Uh, and now enough horn. Uh, how about we jump into another delightful smartco podcast this has been a production of smartco internet radio sir only at smartcast.com <laughs>